0: God's Word in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. So would you work through your word? Would you restore us, renew us, strengthen us for the battle, and to fight it in your truth? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I went to donate blood. And the young woman who was setting everything up asked, What book are you reading? And that started a conversation about God, and she talked for several minutes about what she believed. She had a combination of beliefs from various sources, but her main thing was that we really can't know what is true. People experience God in different ways, so we can't really know if any of them are the truth. We can pray to God, but we can't really know who He is. Now, this is not one of those, your pastor has all the perfect answers, and she was on her knees begging Christ for forgiveness by the end. We talked a little bit, but I don't know that anything changed, and I went on and gave blood. But her belief is common to many. That belief in God is good, but we need to avoid the arrogance of thinking that any one perspective or one belief is true. And perhaps you're like that woman. You gladly profess faith in Jesus. That's why here. but that's true for you. I mean, I'm not going to go tell others. That's what they need to believe. And really, it's the sincerity of one's faith, we're told, not the object of their faith that matters. And yet, while those are common beliefs, I hope to persuade you this morning from God's word that it is not arrogant, but rather humble to believe in Christ alone as the way to God. This is essential, for Paul will show us that the foundational preparation we need to engage and to stand in the spiritual battle is to wrap the belt of truth Around ourselves, this morning we'll see that to win the battle spiritually begins with knowing, believing, loving, and acting on the truth. This morning we'll look at two things. First, in verse 13, standing firm, and then much longer in verse 14. The first part we'll look at the belt of truth. So, verse 13 begins, "Therefore," which is drawing a conclusion on what came before. So, let me review because we looked at this. Two weeks ago, because in verse 10, we saw it began to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And we noted that Christianity gives the paradox that only when we realize our inability do we then have any ability. It's only when we realize that we are weak that we then are strong. Thus, it's not true, though we're often told it is, it's not true that God will never give you more than you can handle. Rather, the truth is at times God gives us more that we can handle so that we can realize our strength only comes in Him. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13 says. And then verse 11 showed us that we need this armor in order to be able to stand against the devil's wiles, or meaning craftiness, his schemes. And we looked at several passages showing, well, what does spiritual conflict mean? And one of those was... Acts 5, where we saw that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church, lied to the apostles about how much money they gave. Yet when Peter confronted them, he said, both Satan filled your hearts and also you have contrived this deed. Their being filled with Satan didn't mean they needed an exorcism or they needed to bind Satan. Rather, they chose to sin by allowing satanic influence over their thoughts. Thus, we can never truly say, the devil made me do it, or that there's some demonic force that needs to be cast out. In fact, we can enter the spiritual conflict with confidence, because on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and all his followers. Due to that, we can resist the devil, knowing that he will flee from us, because the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And then all of that led us to realize that the normal spiritual battle is a fight over our thoughts and ideas. Satan tempts us through our minds, not normally gaining control of our bodies. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10.5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ we destroy destroy spiritual strongholds by destroying arguments against god thus the normal spiritual battle involves our mind fighting for thoughts to be captive to god and not captive to satan that leads to where we are verse 13 therefore because all that is true take up the whole armor of god now paul here He's a prisoner for Christ. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. He's sitting in prison, and he takes the image that's literally chained next to him all the time. A prisoner. Paul utilizes the Roman soldier's armor for the spiritual metaphor. Now, Paul could have picked many metaphors for honoring God in our life. We could look through the Bible and find many different metaphors. And it's interesting that he chose the military concept. And I think Paul recognized that this was a great metaphor not only because of their equipment, but also due to the nature of the structure of military life and how it depicts the Christian life. What I mean by that is often as Paul sat there chained to someone, he would have heard that soldier given a command, an order. Move that prisoner over here, unchain him and then chain the next soldier on and you go off duty. And I doubt Paul ever heard any of the soldiers next to him go, well thank you i'll take that under consideration a soldier doesn't take advice they take orders and yet this is an apt metaphor because many people treat god as their spiritual advisor rather than their commanding officer to them god is a highly respected advisor and they often go with what god says yet at the end of the day They're often functioning as though they're the commanding officer of their life. And we see this when we hear our friends, our family, maybe even ourselves at times say, Well, I know that God's word says, But, well, I know I really should, but you have to understand. And we give reasons and excuses for why that order doesn't really apply to us. And when we do that, we're not treating God as our commanding officer. We're treating him as just a spiritual advisor whom we can listen to at times, or at times reject. And Paul uses this metaphor to remind us that God should be our commanding officer. And so we take up God's armor so that we'll be able to stand in the evil day. Well, what is the evil day? Is it Monday when we go back to work? Is it some other day? We'll know. Paul is clear, every day is the evil day. Ephesians 5.16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Similarly, Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. We live in an age, a world, a day, all metaphors trying to express what is going on in a sin-cursed world. A world in where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. A world where, by and large, we are more concerned for our own pleasure than serving those around us. And to resist that, we need to put on God's armor. And then notice the end of verse 13. And having done all, to stand firm. So, after we've done everything, after we've done all this, we then need to stand. C.H. Spurgeon said, I dare say you will think it a very easy thing to stand still. But it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find the marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much divine grace." standing firm means trusting God even when it does not seem to be making your life any better. We've had many young men and women come through here as they're getting training at Shepherd and some of them in anguish have told me how hard it is to stand firm sexually. They want to honor God, but Christian date after Christian date breaks up with them when they will not wait until marriage. And all their friends, all their family are getting married. And they know what they would need to do to keep dating. And yet, they're being called to stand firm. Or maybe it's nothing like that. You're in school and all your classmates are cheating. And you're just struggling to pass. And the teacher's all praising them for these great grades you're getting. And you begin to wonder, well, maybe I should cheat just a little. Because I might not pass. And yet, we're called to stand firm. Or you may remember... Exodus 14, God delivering Israel from Egypt at the Red Sea. You know, Israel had just left Egypt, and the Egyptians wake up the next morning and go, what did we just do? We don't want to start making those bricks, so they go get their chariots, and they come after them. And the Israelites panic, because they look this way, and there's chariots. The best soldiers in the world, and they look this way, and there's the Red Sea. And so they attack Moses. They blame God and say, look, we'd be better if we were back in Egypt as slaves. You know that utopia where we were whipped, where they made us kill our male children. We want to be back there. And so what does God say? Well, he speaks through Moses and tells them, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Standing firm can be a very hard part of the Christian life. We want to do something. We want to help. We want to be part of the solution. And sometimes, when we've done everything we can, now we just need to stand firm. You've talked to them. You've prayed for them. You've counseled them. And now you need to stand firm. You've gone to the doctors. You've taken the treatment. Now you need to stand firm. You've confessed your sin. You've trusted God's forgiveness that's given through Christ. And so when the satanic attacks of guilt come, you need to stand firm. And I worded those all specifically, because it didn't just say stand firm. It says, and having done all, stand firm. There are things we need to do, but at the end of all those, we say, God, I've done everything you tell me to do, and now I need you to come work supernaturally. I cannot deliver myself. The battle belongs to to the lord that then leads to the things we're called to do and the first is that we're to wrap our waist with the belt of truth the second section the last section the belt of truth so as paul looked over he saw this thick leather belt that the soldier put around their waist now their belt was not a fashion accessory it didn't make their uniform look nice and finished and polished. Nor was this belt so much an element of battle. Rather, in three ways, it was the preparational and foundational part of the rest of their equipment. First, the men of their time wore long, flowing robes. And any time they did physical activity, not just battle, but specifically battle, they would need to take those robes and tuck them into their belt so they could run and move without tripping or being encumbered. Second, the belt could hold their sword, which allowed for attack, and it also held up their breastplate, which would protect their vital organs. And third and lastly, a tightly fitting belt gave confidence and a sense of stability to the soldier. We could also note it did provide a little protection to their lower abdomen, but that was rather incidental to its other three main functions. Thus, in many ways, the soldier's belt was like the modern police officer's belt. One police officer website describes their belt as this, a crucial part of a law law enforcement officer's uniform. It's not just an accessory, but a functional piece of equipment designed to carry necessary tools and keep them accessible at all times. The purpose of the duty belt extends far beyond simply holding up pants. It's a portable storage system that allows officers to carry essential gear, gear by having these items readily available. And like the belt of truth, it's foundational. It's preparational for everything else. And just consider, when does the police officer put on his belt? Well, he puts it on before his shift, and he doesn't take it off till he's done for the day. You may see them out in the grocery store. You may see them sitting in a restaurant. Well, they haven't taken their belt off. They don't store it in their car because they're on lunch break. Why? Because they must always be ready. They can't say, whoa, whoa, hold on, thief, my belt's in the car, so I can't stop you if I don't go put that on first. No, they're always ready. They always wear it. Without the belt, they won't have their taser, their handcuffs, their flashlight, their firearm. In a like manner, without the belt of truth, we won't be able to implement the essential weapons of righteousness, peace, and the gospel of our salvation. But, I mean, military belts are not very beautiful. They get uncomfortable. I mean, sometimes you just want to let that belt loose and just relax. I mean, aren't there times we can take it off a little? I mean, we're a church. Can't we take the belt of truth off here? No. Because there's a spiritual battle going on here as the devil tries to take the seed of the Word of God and keep it from growing in your life. You know, he doesn't want us focusing on the truth. He wants us wandering and going, oh, that guy always sings off tune. Oh, the pastor misspoke again. This is going to be another long sermon. You see how many points he had? Oh man, this is going to be bad. Oh, them over there. You know, they promised they'd come to my house and do that. They never come, never apologize. The devil wants to get our minds off everything this morning, but is what's being said true? And how does it affect my life? Well, we're just relaxing as a family. We're just watching a movie. Can we take the belt of truth off now? No. We must take every thought captive. And one of the most powerful teaching tools in any culture is the stories that we're told, whether in songs, movies, or books. So we must always keep on the belt of truth. I mean, but seriously... Do we always have to be serious and talk about like truth and all of these things? I mean, can't church? can't it just be more about like positivity, good feelings, good vibes? Does it really matter if it's true? Yes. For in Romans 10:12, Paul warns, "For I bear my fellow Jews witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge." Paul continues that they still need to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. You can have zeal, great emotions, wonderful feelings about God but if they're not in line with the truth they don't honor God. Now the flip side is also true. You can have all the truth but if your emotions don't honor God that is equally damnable. That's why Jesus said in John 4.24 God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now Truth is important because while the devil will fight anywhere, he would prefer for the battle to be fought in the arena of feelings, or over whether this is popular, or whether it's on the right side of history, or whether this is prudish or puritanical. He rushes to those fights, those are easy, but he shirks from the battleground of truth. Thus Paul begins his essential gear for the spiritual battle with the belt of truth. For without it, we can't even begin the fight. And this really takes us back to whether God is our commanding officer or our advisor. Do we need to be thinking in terms of right and wrong, or true or untrue? Well, I remember when I was a math teacher, and one teacher always had these uh, warm-ups to begin the day where he would give a story or something and he'd give some moral lesson and one day he would told the story and he told me about it of a new police officer just finished cadet training and was very excited for his first shift as he woke up he put his uniform got everything and then he looked at his tie and looked well that's a joke one of those clip-ons mickey mouse ties i mean i'm a i'm a police officer i got the same color so he went in his closet got out the same color and put it on looked in the mirror and thought oh don't i look good and his first shift went great he couldn't believe it. he was doing everything he always wanted and then a call came in over the radio a robbery near where he was with nervousness and excitement he calls in and says he'll be there turns the lights on The squad car flies over there, and as he's getting close, he sees a guy darting down an alley, so he drives as close as he can, he jumps out, runs, tackles the robber, and he's just thinking, life couldn't be any better. So all of a sudden, he felt a tug on the back of his neck, and he was on the ground and being choked with his own tie. He thought, "Oh, it's just a tie, who cares? It's just a silly little thing. And yet they wanted him to wear the clip-on because it was for his safety that he not wear something that could strangle his own neck. You know, he's sitting there, oh, that's a piece of advice. My commanding officer told me to wear this, but does it really matter? I mean, yes, God says we need to be about that truth, but does it really matter? Well, is he our commanding officer or is he a spiritual advisor that we can say, well, you know, this one I'll take. No, that one's not so much what we need for our church. And yet, as we noted at the beginning, this is a major problem for our culture. For we think what matters is just that you believe in God. It doesn't matter really what you believe. And we might be like Pilate when questioned by Jesus. Well, I mean, what even is truth? I mean, can we really know? I mean, we live in a multicultural society and it makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I think, look, these numerous, wonderful, kind people, are they really wrong on What's going to affect them for eternity? I mean, they seem kind. They're nice. Can they really be wrong? And the clear answer must be, well, it doesn't really matter if we think they're wrong or if others think they're right. It's whether they are wrong or right. And it's not so much what we say. It's what God says. And in the Bible, God has truly and clearly spoken to us. He's spoken to us and told us he's spoken through this world. He's spoken to us in his word and he's spoken through his son. Thus, to then say, well, we can't really know is actually an insult to God. You imagine you're working for a new company and your boss comes in and says, hey, I want you to pick up lunch tomorrow. Thanks. And leaves. Well, the next day when he comes and he goes, well, that's not what I wanted picked up. And I wanted to hear an hour before. You could say, well, you didn't really tell me. You just said pick up lunch. I didn't know when you wanted it or what restaurant you wanted it from. You weren't clear. But if you came in and said, hey, tomorrow I want you to go to Texas Roadhouse. Here's the manager's name. You're supposed to pick up this. It's at Cal and Lawrence at 11 o'clock. Oh, and I'm going to text you the address. Have it back here by noon. Well, then you said, well, you know, I didn't get the food. You weren't clear. He'd say, what are you talking about? I told you the restaurant. I told you the time. I gave you the manager's name. I gave you the address. I even texted you the location. Well, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, you don't need a PhD in Greek to understand what he's saying. It's not confusing or obscure or some riddle. It's either true or it's untrue. The issue is not the lack of clarity. It's whether we will Believe it. Not only that, Romans one twenty. And since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so that we are without excuse. So, we need to be clear. We know the truth. But we're not saying that we have all the truth. That's why Paul says now, we know in part. Rather, we claim to know the source of truth, and that He has revealed certain things to us. There are many things we don't know; the Bible doesn't speak to. But those that it has spoken to clearly, we need to also declare clearly. You might rightly ask, well, I mean, other books, other religions say that God's spoken to them. I mean, so how do we, how do we know? I mean, this book says it's true; the other books say they're true. Well, often." the good question to ask is, well, have you actually even read them? Have you read the Bible? You know, a lot of people throw these things up, but they've examined none. You need to discuss and look. Have you read the Gospels? You know, Here, you're in a Christian church. I'd encourage you to read the four Gospels. Read the primary sources. And in them, you'll find that Jesus speaks with authority, with compassion and love. And yet, Jesus words include some very bold claims (laughs) i want you to picture someone in your mind we'll probably all have someone different this isn't like like an idea i actually want you to picture someone in your mind maybe an aunt or an uncle or a boss and imagine they come to you tomorrow and they say this in life you lack one thing go sell everything you have give it to the poor and then i want you to come follow me for the rest of my life your life or they say to you look I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You're never going to get to God except you come through me. I mean, I think you'd look at that person and go, ha ha ha, what are you talking about? Like, you're crazy. No, I'm serious. You'd be like, what are you? Well, you have to invite either they're crazy, or they're telling the truth, or they're pulling your leg, but you can't just say, well, yeah, I mean, that's just anything. And yet Jesus made these bold, radical claims. Or one more, John 5, 17, Jesus said to them, My father, talking about God, is working until now, and I am working. And the people around him didn't this ha ha, what a jokester. No, the people took him very seriously, for the next verse says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, Making himself equal with God. You know, consider Jesus' words against all the claims that religions are basically the same thing. You know, that's like walking up to three people doing the same math problem, and though they all give different answers, you go, well, they're all basically saying the same thing because they're all doing multiplication. Like, well, no. They all are doing multiplication, but they gave different answers. So the fact that different religions talk about God and salvation and what's the problem <laughs> with the world, yes, those are same things, but they give radically different answers. And if you compare them, it's not so much the similarities, but the differences. You know, there's only one religion that says it's all about grace and that God reached down and gave His own Son to save you from your sins. Only in Christianity did the Son willingly live, die and rise again, so that those people not one what they did for God, but what God God did for them, could they be forgiven, restored and adopted into his family. But I don't like that that has some dreadful consequences about billions of people's destiny. Well, that makes me uncomfortable. It's nervous to tell someone that what they believe is wrong. Well, I don't like the fact that I'm aging. I really don't. I don't like the fact that I'm going to die. I hate watching my aunts and uncles, my parents get older, some of them dying. It's it's tragic. I hate it. Whether I like it or not has no bearing on reality. I can either accept it and live in light of it, or I can try to pretend it's not there. But whatever I, whether I agree with it or not, one day I'm going to die. Well, what then? Well, I don't claim to know. But the one who died and rose again said, he knows that it's appointed for us once to die and then the judgment. And he also said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come to judgment, but he's passed from death to life. You know, Jesus is making some bold truth claims that could very well be wrong, but they can't just be dismissed as mean or intolerant. That would be like hearing a doctor's diagnosis of cancer and responding, well, that was mean. Well, that's intolerant. Well, did all the other doctors in the world agree? Well, you might find other doctors that disagree, but the issue is not whether the doctor's mean or kind. It's whether the diagnosis is accurate. Now clearly he could say it in a mean way, he could have a horrible bedside manner, yet you either have cancer and you need to do something, or you don't, and you need to not listen to that doctor anymore. Likewise, the mere claim that the Bible is true is neither cruel or intolerant in and of itself. Yes, we could say it that way, and we could be wrong, but the claim is what needs to be considered. Is it true or false? False. And the last thing we need to say is that if we're going to wrap ourselves with the truth, that means we need to know, believe, love, and act on it. We'll look at each of these briefly. So knowing the truth is the first essential step because you can't act on what you don't know. That's why back in Ephesians 4.15, Paul told us to speak the truth in love with one another so that we might grow in Christ's likeness. We're not going to grow like Christ if we're not speaking the truth. That's why the devil's main job is to lie and deceive. And so we have to combat that with the truth. And there's a major danger though, because not only does Satan not want us to hear the truth, sometimes we don't want to hear the truth. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Just like the truth must guard your doctor's diagnosis, truth must guide our church too. This leads to the next aspect of it though, for it's not just enough to know the truth, we must believe it. Believing the truth is also essential because we can be like those that Paul warns about in 2 Thessalonians 3, seven, who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. You've heard the gospel. You know the truth of Christ, but you just refuse to believe. It's like knowing vegetables are good for you, but never actually eating them. And if you don't believe the truth of Christ, you're subject to the attacks of Satan. When the first temptation to sin comes and you think, well, I'm not really sure God's word says he'll punish sin. Well, then you're toast. If you hear God's word and you go, well, I mean, is that really God's word or was that just Paul's opinion? You'll be defeated in battle every time. You need to know it and believe it. Not only know it and believe it, we must also love it. 2 Thessalonians 2 is a very important passage. It's talking about the day of the Lord and explains that this lawless one, this lawless one must come first. And it says in verses 9-12, through 12, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Thus, well, Satan's going to do at that time what he's always done, and that is deceive. But notice what it says next as to why people are deceived. It continues, Because they refuse to love the truth, and so to be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned to not, do not believe in the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now remember, when we're talking about the truth, we're not talking about some abstract philosophical ideas. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. To love the truth is to love Jesus. And I can say for myself, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home, and for many years I knew the truth, and if you asked me, I could answer many wonderful truths, but I didn't love it. Rather, I was like these here in Second Thessalonians, who found pleasure in unrighteousness. And friends, you're in a very dangerous place if you can articulate the truths of Christ, but you find it as satisfying as dry toast, When you're thirsty. If you come to church, and honestly, you're just kind of bored the whole time. Okay, I'm going to church. That's a very dangerous place to sit in. Or if you love Christ and you've lost your love for Christ, you're a sitting duck in the crosshairs of Satan. So put on the belt of truth by loving the truth. And this leads to the last aspect of cinching the belt of truth on tight. And that is acting on the truth. Now, in some ways, we can look through Scripture and see that knowing the truth is believing the truth, and believing is acting, and acting is loving. I understand that. Yet there is some distinction that we can see. And when we can focus here on the last one, acting on the truth. I've shared before, but after my freshman year of college, I went and worked at a camp in Tennessee. And one of my responsibilities was to go hike up this Trail and get on top of a cliff with another person and set up a rappelling system. And then campers would come and we would hook them into a harness and then hook them to the ropes and they could rappel down the cliff. It was about 50 feet, it was quite a drop, but they had a rope that they attached themselves to which they could rappel down. And also, we attached ourselves who were attached to harness systems that would lower them down if they slipped, we'd catch them. And we would explain all this to them. we would to, okay, do you understand what you're going to do? We're going to say all these words. You're not going to go until we say this, and you say that. Okay, got it, got it. Okay, do you understand? Yes. Do you believe it? Yes. Okay, so what you need to do now is walk backwards and lean out over the cliff. And their feet would freeze. They knew the truth. They believed the truth. So we'd ask them, okay, look, this, these harnesses, all these ropes, they can hold like 1,000 pounds. Do you weigh 1,000 pounds? No. Do you believe they can hold a 1,000 pounds? Yes. All right, so now you need to back up. (laughs) And they didn't want to act on the truth. You know, the ironic thing was, the repellers, or lack of repellers, who didn't actually act on the truth, they were in the most danger. Because to act on the truth, you would lean all the way back, and then you'd have two feet firmly against the rock. And even if you let go, I was holding on to you. The ones who wouldn't lean back, they were in danger because they were like at an 89 degree against the rock. And then their feet would slip and you know what happens next? And then we're giving them a Kleenex to stop their bloody nose. But the more they knew the truth, believed the truth, and acted on the truth, the safer they were. And the point is obvious. You know, Jesus is the truth. You can know about him. You can say, I believe him. But it's not going to be keeping you safe. He's not going to be keeping you safe until you lean back. And you might be thinking like those repellers. You're crazy. Lean backwards over a cliff. Yeah, that's smart. I'm going to trust that some guy who lived 2,000 years ago and claimed that he was God and died and rose again, that's going to forgive me eternally. I'm going to give my life to serve others because that's what he told me to do. I'm going to say things that everyone at school, at at work, thinks are mean. Yeah, that's pretty dumb. Well, no, it's not. It's leaning back and trusting the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us? It is so easy to get caught up in, is this popular? What will people think? What will this mean if I act on this? And yet, we need to cinch on the belt of truth. And so Lord, would you help us? Anything that was said that's untrue, would you help people not to believe that? And would we as a church be committed to the truth and speak the truth? Lord, would we be faithful to the truth no matter the cost, knowing that you promise to reward those who seek you, who honor you, who give their lives to follow you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.